Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Team Human is a labor of love. You can get the ad-free version as well as access to our live events, Discord server, and monthly Team Human salons by going to teamhuman.fm and clicking on support. You're on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine, an opportunity to question what passes for information, consider the stories we're being told, how they're put together, and why we believe them. This is Media Ecology Kids, and you're soaking in it. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, media studies professor extraordinaire, and the author of Dynamic Media Environments, my friend and co-conspirator, Catherine Fry. I get why the January 6th thing happened. I get it. It was terrible and terrifying, but I understand a little bit about how those people got to that desperate point. And all of it happened on social media. Like all of it happened because of our media environment. Catherine's going to help us see how the media environment in which a story is told may have a lot more to do with how we understand it than we realize. Indeed, the medium may just be the message. It's time to intervene on behalf of people and all living things. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. Thanks for being on Team Human. I'm delighted to introduce you to my kind of media theorist, Professor Catherine Fry of my sister school, Brooklyn College. We've actually secretly conjoined our media studies master's programs so that my Queens College MA students can take courses with Catherine and her colleagues at Brooklyn College, and her students can come take courses with us. While we're really good on media activism, social change, and tactical media interventions, they're really good at media ecology, media literacy, and understanding media environments. 
I had Catherine come to Queens to do a presentation for our students and grabbed her to do a conversation for Team Human. Catherine Fry's new book, Dynamic Media Environments, helps us understand how changes in our media environment can lead to massive changes in power and great fear about how to navigate those changes. Some of this may come off as a bit of shop talk between media professors, but there's no one I know who has been more reassuring about how understanding media can help anyone gain their bearings in this ever-changing, multi-dimensional shit show. So here's Catherine Fry. I knew you originally probably from The Lamp, maybe. Yeah, we definitely connected through the lamp, but I had known of you before that. I don't remember that you and I had actually met personally. Oh, yes, I knew you from some media ecology conferences. Yeah, we we sort of connected briefly, but then more of, I guess, I saw you more when you were connected with the lamp. So for people who don't know anything about it, how, how do you talk about, how do you explain our discipline, or if that's what we want to call it. Uh, how do you explain what media ecology is to people? Okay. I thought you were going to say, how do you explain media literacy? And I'm glad that's, that you didn't yeah, ask that harder, because that's, that's a very big terrain. But the way that I explain media ecology, well, first of all, I always have a lot of problems explaining it to people. And they tell me all the time that I need to do things like, you need to have the elevator pitch of what you're talking about, which... I understand why they say that. I don't necessarily agree with it. But I guess if I were to describe it briefly, I would say that media ecology is the study of how media create cultural environments and how there's a lot of emphasis on media forms and how they direct the way that we see the world and think about the world. And that's in opposition to how most people study media, which is the content alone. Media ecology looks at it from a much broader perspective. Right. So if you were looking at at TV, it wouldn't just be, oh, let's analyze all these sitcoms for their relationship to the family or to race or to economics, but rather, what is it like to live in a world with television? Right, exactly. And it reminds me of a story that Neil Postman told at a conference in New York State when, way back in like 1994 or 1995, Todd Gitland happened to be at that same conference and they were having a bit of a spar and they were discussing the fact that there was this study done about a town in Canada, I believe it was, that had never had access to television and then television was introduced and they were talking about the difference in that area, that that small culture, that community over a 10-year period. And Todd Gitlin, of course, was like coming down on the side of, well, yeah, because they had all this content coming into their homes. They had like all this news and information. And Niels Postman said, no, it's because they had television. It's just like completely reorganized who they were as a culture or as a community. And I guess I mean, that's a really good example, I would say, of what media ecologists are interested in. They, like, step outside of the content. But, I mean, content is important. Yeah. I mean, you, ha- you can't ignore content, but you can kind of put it in its place alongside all the rest of the other factors, all the other components that make up a culture where you have certain dominant forms of media. Right. And the way people make content or think about content is going to be different in different media environments. You know, exactly. so it matters, you exactly. know, you know, Don yeah. Quixote is different than, you know, the Truman Show. 
you know. <laughs> <laughs> yes, as one example. Right. Yeah, no, a- absolutely. Yeah, another way to describe it is well, you need to understand how a medium shapes the content and even makes, like what you just said, some content even possible. A medium makes a kind of content possible. Other media do not make it possible. So there are certain ideas and ways of seeing the world that are simply not possible through print media, for example. It's just not possible to access something that you had referred to earlier, like a picture of a child in a womb. Like, that's not a print media phenomenon. But you can access it through a completely different sort of medium, which is what a sonogram is. It's a medium. Right. Like we were saying, your relationship to your baby is, I mean, your first time you see your baby is now that weird little one out color. But for us, a little black and white. Yeah. You know, demon yep. child in exactly, there. <laughs> exactly, and and like and all the rest of the things that you can probe with medical tools, right. right? And the way that that people perform medical operations, and even from afar, this is all media related. This is all part of like the environment that we're in, and I think media ecology is so great because it takes into account all of these various different technologies or techniques, whatever term it is that you choose to use to yeah. describe it. Yeah, it's just so much more interesting. Yeah, and for me, it, uh, where it's the most interesting is the way that, I guess this is what I've been thinking about lately, the way that certain things get almost kind of naturalized by a medium. Like that Mumford wrote about when they put the clock on the tower in the medieval village is the same time that they started paying people by the hour. Mm-hmm. And it was a way mm-hmm. of making hourly wages working for the by the hour seem like part of your world. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, there's the clock. It's mm-hmm. the thing. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's it's interesting that it keeps we keep doing that. And if you're alive when it happens, you notice the new thing. Like we notice smartphones all over the place. But if you're born with them, it's just I can't imagine yeah, it's just the it's way just things are. It's just part of your natural world. Exactly. And that's a really that's a good way of explaining it to very young people. Mm-hmm. Because they didn't grow up with the same kind of tools that we had access to that we relied on, which in effect makes us very different people and that's a point I try to make with students all the time like a very different kind of person than I am, but that doesn't mean that we can't examine things together and talk about them, but I have a, a perspective that's different because my media environment was very, very different from yours. And, and there's no judgment to that at all. It's just say, you know, I'm not saying there's better and worse. That That's not the way to enter those conversations. You're just saying it's very different. So let's talk about that difference. Right. And it's not that it isn't better or worse. It may indeed be worse, but it's not the same conversation, right? <laughs> right. Well, well, I mean, it may be worse, but it may be better. I mean, I try to look at all these things in all of their complexity. For example... One could argue that social media, and one argues all the time, and I don't disagree with this, that it's just like created chaos, right? It's created chaos in our political culture, and it's created, you know, this vast sort of information overload system, um, and that's just one way of describing it. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, the collapsing of the hierarchy of communication that we had with the old broadcasting network and even the publishing hierarchy, when you collapse that, all of these other things can surface that we are battling right now. 
But there can be some really good things like, you know, LGBTQ, all of those discourses, which are available now and readily, they've made lives better for a lot of people having that conversation. So it's not all one thing or another. It's certainly we live in a time of incredible challenge. And and, and people are very afraid, and I take note of that. People's fears are almost insurmountable right now. We have no idea what's going on in, you know, the United States government. Like, just yesterday, yeah. we had, like, another huge upset. You know, this is terrain that we just don't know how to navigate. And would you, not to be a media determinist, but do you think stuff like you know, Trump or the the alt-right or the, the seeming uh, uh, dissolution of institutions of government are a result of interactive media? Yeah, yes. <laughs> and, and, and I think you're right to say, let's not call ourselves technological determinists, right? Because things always work in a connected way, as opposed to a linear way. It has caused it, but it's created an environment where people have access to new ideas and people whose voices were muffled before are now being heard. And that's very, very scary to people who, for whom the status quo is advantageous. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Rich white men. You know, just to use an example, or just like patriarchal system. And that's all been challenged. And there's a lot, like I was saying before, there's a lot of fear attached to that. People get scared. And I hope nobody takes this the wrong way when I say this, but I get why the January 6th thing happened. I get it. It was terrible and terrifying. And it was, you know, an absolute, you know, made a mockery of our democracy, but I understand a little bit about how those people got to that desperate point, and Trump was the person who could then allow them to amplify all of their fears. And all of it happened on social media, like all of it happened because of our media environment. So yeah, so you've got like massive change, massive change in like paradigms of understanding, a massive shift in power, like, oh, no, you know, this makes me feel really, really unsure and restless. And I'm really angry. And this guy is like, telling me where my anger needs to be funneled to. And I'm going to go on the warp warpath, so yeah. to speak. 
Well, no, it makes sense. I mean, this is what, what I was writing about. Like back in 94, I did this book, Media Virus. Mm-hmm. And people, you know, it turned into this sort of viral marketing thing, which isn't what I meant. When I, The subtitle of Media Virus was Hidden Agendas in Popular Culture. And what I was saying was that now that, you know, William Randolph Hearst and Rupert Murdoch were losing their authority over the kind of the trickle-down media space, things were going to bubble up that were the agendas of popular culture that weren't getting recognized and that they would dominate for a while, you mm-hmm. know, and that's why we saw early on, we saw, you know, Nazis on Jerry Springer or that stuff. And then finally we saw the Rodney King tape and things yeah. like that, which were, yeah. they spread without control. And like, I guess like you're saying, originally the unexpressed agendas were, you know, gay and trans and black and sexuality and all the sort of countercultural stuff. And then, you know, whatever that is, the white male alt-right tech bro thing or whoever they are, you know, or the Bannon bros, the Gamergate kids, they became a counterculture as well and then used the same tools and here we are. Yeah, exactly. Well, it depends upon your politics, I guess. But I I think if you tend towards a more conservative politics, you like a structure that's sure. And there was a book written about it like years ago. Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I'm not remembering the name of it. Um, It had to do, there was something in the title about an elephant, (laughs) not remembering it. But it was this, you know, sort of reminding people that one of the differences between people who are progressive in their politics and people who are conservative is that conservatives like to have an authoritarian figure. They like to have more structure. And they sort of like that strong kind of hand. But people who are more progressive are more comfortable with the uncertainty. They're more interested in Questions of equality, of course, I'm generalizing a lot because there's some there's dogma on either end. So that accounts for a lot of differences. And when and when you kind of lose a structure of authority at all, or even a sense of organization, left or right, everybody kind of goes crazy. And I keep right. going back to this idea of fear. I think so much of it is fear-driven. I think people are very, very afraid of a lot of stuff. And when you're afraid of like your sources of communication, it becomes a conundrum and it becomes a really, really important, it becomes a space where I think people who study communication, we sort of have our finger on the pulse. We're kind of engaged in what I refer to as, to my science friends as the superior discipline. I mean, when you think about it, and they laugh at me, yeah. of course. But it is. But well, it is. media is everything. I'm sorry. Communication is everything, right? Yeah. Like most what of how- What else is left? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. Like Go down you, to what, the DNA? Yeah. That's pure communication. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Exactly. So, and I firmly believe that. And yeah. I firmly believe that we have an opportunity here to really show what we know and to help figure out a way to get people to understand understand what's going on and not be so fearful. And that's why I'm a big advocate of media literacy, however you want to define that term. I have my own definition of it, which is sort of different from the definition that other people have. But it seems to me if you understand how something works, you know, even in a rudimentary way, it can help you to understand how to move forward. So I think this is our job now. Because we're living in a mess. We are, though. We we are. And that's why, you know, and I want to talk to you about, you know, you have given birth again. You put another child into this world by the name of dynamic media environments, <laughs> expanding the scope of media literacy. And 
It's funny, when I see the term media literacy now, I'm reminded of, um, remember Dana Boyd did some essay right after uh, Trump was elected? And she was kind of arguing that this is what you get for teaching media literacy, is you end up with all these people deconstructing the messaging and without the skills to really reassemble them into anything coherent. Here's what you get. I just She was arguing that we got this because... We were inviting almost too much critical thinking. And I would argue maybe it's we, you know, not enough critical thinking, but we certainly, media literacy, whatever it was, needed an upgrade. And I think that's what you're trying to do here to say, look, 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 what we've done for all these years is taught kids how to read the media. And this is not a media that you read. This is media that you're kind of swimming in. It's an environment with almost, it's almost like a living environment of culture. And we're going to need a more of a systems dynamical model to understand it. Yeah, exactly. So going back to Dana Boyd for a moment, I don't know if she was just trying to be provocative. Maybe that was her goal. I, I just find it hard to believe that she would actually believe that this is problematic, that we're teaching critical thinking. But I would agree that just teaching people how to deconstruct messages is so, it's the low-hanging fruit of what I think media literacy can do and be. It's very shallow. And I need to explain what I mean by that. It's really important that people be able to, for example, look at a commercial, look at a film, pay attention to a news program wherever they encounter it, and be able to pick out what's going on in the content that's leading me towards certain conclusions. That's, again, absolutely essential. But if you're just doing that, you're not getting into like the deeper issues. There's not a deep understanding. So let me give an example. I have a big thing about the way in which people do media literacy where they're teaching people how to fact check and to pick out disinformation and misinformation. That's really hot right now. It's right. been hot since, you know, Trump was first elected. Right. Dismiss and mal, I think, information. We got, <laughs> right. <laughs> like gay, straight, trans, bi, yeah. dismiss. The, it's got a, it's very, these very defined, but I get, I get there's difference. One sort of intentional misinformation, one's unintentional, and one's just like hacking, kind of. Yeah, and all of it, okay, problematic, and we need to understand what it is. But there's always hidden in that argument this notion that there is a truth that exists out there, and it's knowable. And all you need to do is have the skills of figuring out where the lies are in the message. And, oh, I don't even know where to start unpacking it, except to say, whose truth are we talking about here? And in right. what context is something truthful? You know, for whom is it truthful and when? So that's my first question, because it kind of depends upon, you know, your paradigm of understanding the world. There are certain truths, there are certain things that will be true to you based on, say, a set of values or beliefs that you have, and they will be absolutely not true to somebody else. So there's that piece of it. But then the other piece of it is, okay, so you watch television news. And I use this example when I talk about, you know, this notion of like questioning truth. I did a whole study of the floods in the Midwest 
that in 1993, and I wrote a book about it, came out in 2003. Nobody's ever read it. But the way they were covered in the media? <laughs> the way that they were covered in the national media versus the local media. I was like so fascinated because I'm from the Midwest. Right. And I'm fascinated by the way that they interspersed certain cuts like ABC, CBS, NBC, of farmers, the way that they would frame their faces and then cut to this river running wildly, cut to this the stream shot of this farmhouse being shattered. And it was just, it was editing. It was all done in editing and the use of certain shots. And I say, so nobody ever questions the truth of that? Are we getting the truth of the floods based on the way the manipulations of all the video footage and then the words that were being used by the reporters. Like, nobody's talking about that. They just talk about, you know, these sort of vague terms, misinformation and disinformation. Are you talking about the words that are being used? You know, are we getting to, like, who who's actually produced this message and for whom? I don't know. I just have so many problems with it. And when the whole fake news thing started, I just, my head was exploding. Right. <laughs> it's like, come on. There's this, there's a much better conversation that we can be having. We can start there, but let's dig deeper. And that was my whole thing with, you know, work with the lamp and how I thought media literacy can be done differently. And the lamp, for people who don't know, was a New York City, an effort in New York City to teach media literacy in public high schools mainly by giving kids tools and, and well, letting them remix and yeah i mean certainly we did a lot of work in high schools but we did a lot of work in community centers uh. and with family groups and you know we were kind of all over the place doing all kinds of stuff i mean you know we were hungry we were we were stupid yeah. we didn't know what we were doing but that's the best way to oh, start yeah. doing something like i don't know what i'm doing Le right. let's let's just like Let's just go to the YMCA and bring cameras. Right. No, it's great to, to it's great to walk into a situation not knowing what other people have decided can't be done. Yeah. You know. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. But we had, you know, when we started way back when, 2007, people A didn't know what media literacy was or B thought we were stupid or C thought that our method of delivery was not fear-inducing enough. Right. You know, there's so many it was great too empowering. <laughs> yeah, the yeah, real, it's that's like, the real problem. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I wrote, I, I wrote a piece about an encounter that we had when we went to a Catholic middle school in Brooklyn, and we we were asked to come in and speak to the principal and the police captain from that precinct, and they sat us down and they told us a story about um, how a young man. This was like. 2009, just to give you the context of yeah. time, there was a young student who had gotten a cell phone and had texted something really disturbing outside of the classroom to another of his classmates. And it was, it's, you know, the news of this spread like wildfire in this small community of will. Brooklyn. Yeah. And, and the principal didn't know what to do. They, they had heard about the lamp that maybe we could come in and we could right. talk about like use of cell phones and all of that. And we were like, yeah, we can do. We'd love to do that. That would be great. Yeah. Um, and I started to explain to the principal, these are the kinds of things we could do. For example, we could do this, and then we could do this. We could do this, and she's just kind of looking at me like, "What?" And the police captain, who <laughs> who is like literally right across from the table from me, did this. He put two hands on the table and he stood up and he said, "No, we want you to scare the shit out of them." Uh, and, you know, my partner and I, DC, were yeah. like, 
um, that's really not how we go about uh, doing it. But it was such a, it's just yeah. such a great example of a lot of what we encounter. Right. And it is interesting, right? In a lot of media literacy exercises I've seen people do where it's like you show kids how the news story was put together, but it's better. I mean, what I used to do was give kids the raw footage of the news story and say, cut whatever story you want to tell with that footage. And you can see they can tell any friggin' story they want. Exactly. And then, you know, and then you get, you know, the, the great stuff that you see later, like when GM released, a, what was that, an SUV, and they were inviting the public to make ads, and people made these anti-SUV ads out of their footage. And it's so beautiful. Great. But then there's this other media literacy thing that I'm still living in media, and, it, and I'm not a fully awakened being, Right. I'm not through all my stuff. So I get triggered, right? Or whatever. I was watching Fox this morning, Fox News, and I watched them because I wanted to see how were they covering the loss of that speaker guy. Yeah. See, I'm so politically astute. That speaker <laughs> guy got douched. I know who you, you mean. Know, he's gone. <laughs> right. So I wanted to see how do they cover it because MSNBC has their thing and CNN was sort of not as celebratory about it. They were more mourning it where MSNBC was happy. I was like, what would Fox do? And I turn on Fox and it's like a... 35-minute story taking, um, I call it spy cam, like security camera footage of violence happening in Democrat cities. So there's like, here's a guy getting stabbed right in front of his, his girlfriend or wife. Here's a woman getting kicked. And how there's this violence epidemic in Democrat cities right now. And the proof, of course, is they have these video pictures of violent things happening. And I started to think, well, is there any data? Like, is there more violence happening? Or do we just have more cameras? And so this, even this story could be, yeah. look at us now, that violence in cities is being recorded and these people are being caught, whereas before they would have gotten away. Sure. And is there more or less? I don't know if there's more or less, but I'm watching this story and I'm thinking, I know people, I mean, my mom's gone now, but people like my mom who would watch that and think, oh my God, it's so much more violent than... Yeah. And yeah. that's the scary part to me mm -hmm. is that is that people are not even at the read the media level. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And and when you put it that way, it just reminds you that you you kind of start out feeling defeated, right? It's like right. I don't even know where to start. But you just have to start somewhere. Right. And it's great to start with content. That's a great example. But then you can like move it into a conversation was, well, let's compare this story with that story. And what about if it were on TV versus in print? I mean, this is something that I would right. do a lot. I did so many workshops where I would have, I would teach students, I called it news tools workshop, where I would teach them about how information is so different in these various different forms, sound, image, you know. Right. print only. And then we would do this really fun thing at the end of it where I would give them a set of what I called facts, you know, like fire breaks out at such and such and such, where, where we are, whatever. And I just give a, a bunch of facts about, okay, this is the thing that happened. Now, you guys are going to write a 30-second TV news piece about it. You're going to write like two paragraphs of a, you know, a newspaper story, et cetera, et cetera. And then go and go. And I've done that with like fifth graders, with middle schoolers, with librarians, with teachers. And all of the time, they love it. Mm -hmm. They love doing it. And they all understand that, oh, right. So we're the TV people. So we're going to like show this picture and that picture and that picture. And then when they hear themselves describe what they would do, 
they magically come to these conclusions about, oh, yeah, so the news is really, really different across these different media. And to me, that's just such a basic media ecology exercise. Right. Like, this is media ecology, kids. This is what you're doing. But without using that term. Right. Right. Because you're taking two <laughs> words that they hate, you know. <laughs> it's like bad marketing. Yeah. You know, it's like media, ugh, ecology, oh, no, oh, green right. and environment and all that. Well, it's the same with media literacy. Everybody yeah. hates that word. Like, oh, oh. It reminds me of when we were first pounding the pavement and trying to get funding for the lamp. And we would sit with people and they're like, well, media literacy? I think students need to be able to read and write. They need that kind of literacy first. <laughs> like, oh, okay. Right. Reading, yeah. writing, arithmetic. You want to teach them TV? That's right. media literacy yeah. too, dude. I know. And yeah. what we get, you know, because yeah. I'm teaching in the media studies department here, we get a lot of students undergrad who come in because it's like, oh, this will be easy. I'll get to watch TV and movies. And then we break their little minds, you know, and they're like, oh, no, now I can't go into advertising like I wanted to. Do you I, get that? <laughs> they get very upset. Like, I'll never be able to watch a TV show the same way again anymore. Yeah, well, thank liberal arts for that critical thinking sorry but but so then let me ask you so so when i write books not to be too self-deprecating but i write books for money and for love and so a lot of people read it you chose to write this book now you're already a tenured like full professor person you could write for you chose to write a book for a real academic house that costs like 40 bucks or whatever in paperback. So you have a specific audience in mind for what you're doing, right? It's not just Um, Joe, uh, a television watcher. Yeah, no. I mean, I would like to write that book. And I think that's the, like, I need to do that now. Yeah, please, thank you very much. I I really need to do that. Um, I know agents and stuff. But I... (laughs) (laughs) Oh, okay, good. Yes. Um... Yeah, I felt like I needed to get down this model that I had created after becoming involved with the lamp and doing so much work, you know, pounding the pavement, working in the trenches, however you want to describe it. I was outside of academe. I was outside of the, uh, you know, out of that world, that institutionalized world, because it seemed really important to me. And it was completely out of my comfort zone. But I was able to like come up with this sort of map in my head of how this could be done, because I was I'm also a media ecologist, like this can be done differently. And then I stepped down from the lamp. And I've been teaching this model to my graduate students and kind of like honing it. But I always felt like, well, I need to write a this book. But in all honesty, it's very, I'm still trying to figure it out. Mm. I'm still working on it, actually. And I think this model that I came up with is more of a heuristic. It's like a thinking piece. It's useful for me to think like that. So I just thought, eh, I'll see, if, I'll see an, if other people are yeah. interested in thinking about it this way, too. So it defines an approach to doing media literacy as a dynamic yeah, yeah. Or, 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 and if you don't like the term media literacy, we don't have to use that term. Right. We can just say, let's look at how we can study problems in the world right now from this particular perspective. Maybe this is an interesting way. And right. we can like start anywhere. You can start with like a piece of media content if you want to, or you can start with like what's going on in government right now, or the fact that New York City just got flooded last Friday with inundated with water. This is a problem, and it's probably going to get worse. How can we think about addressing that problem using this model? And how do we think about 
That's exactly what I'm doing right now, actually. Mm. I'm involved in a very exciting project that involves the DEP and Department of Environmental Department Protection. And, and protection. And, um, and we still have one. Yeah. Wow. Some other colleagues at Brooklyn College who are scientists and the city of Copenhagen. We're like putting our heads together and it's like, what do we do? What are we going to do? And I'm sort of like the communication person. Right. Right. So to me, this is very interesting. Like, I get to do community-based, real-world problem stuff, which I really, really enjoy. But, but getting back to, like, why did I write the book, it's because that's the best way I could figure out to, like, start working on this stuff. Right. But for the other people, so if there's a, a, a fifth-grade teacher, a seventh-grade teacher, a community organizer listening to this who doesn't happen to have time to read the book or who we want to convince to read the book, what is the heuristic? And how does the heuristic work? So it's this model. It's an atomic metaphor, right? I, because I love, you know, models of atoms. They're so great. Because it, it suggests that there's a lot of movement, Right. It suggests that, okay, when you look at a situation, you have to understand what the power dynamics are at work. Like, what's the powerful force at work here? And what's the context? Like, what's the geographic context? Or what's the cultural context that we're talking about here? And then what sort of content are we seeing? And how does all of that kind of work together in this cultural environment that is, I don't want to say... Um, created by a medium, but working inextricably with the dominant means of communication, which not right now happens to be in the digital environment. Let's face it. I mean, it just is. Everything runs through the digital environment. So we think that way. And our power structures are like aligning with that kind of logic of the digital environment. Well, so let's take a real problem, which would be fun to analyze from a bunch of perspectives. covid vaccine and mask communication. So you've got Fauci going on TV, telling people to wear masks and to take vaccines, even though the science may have been not fully certain yet on how these things work, whether masks really prevent community spread, what the side effects of the vaccine are, will boys get myocarditis, presenting a doubt-free thing because there's this other media environment of MAGA people and, and vaccine conspiracy theorists who are speaking loudly and as far as I'm concerned, they took the sort of the wrong kind of Walter Lippmann approach to communication, which is we are the experts, we are certain, and intuitively we knew they can't be that certain because we're seeing what's happening all around us and hearing different things. And if anything, they pushed more of us into conspiracy land by saying, no, 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 it couldn't have come from that lab in China. Wuhan coincidence, nothing, to, nothing, to move right along, don't look here. That was basically a communications challenge for a world in which their listeners were at all different levels of media literacy, of critical capability. But not only that, but they come from very specific places contextually. This is why context and paradigm are so interesting to me and so important to understand. There are people who are anti-vaccination because they have had a problematic relationship with science. It, it seems to be like, well, you're either with the science or you're not. But science is not perfect. And I actually wrote a piece about this where I was looking at people in Appalachia and people that were written about in the New York Times from LA and about their vaccination hesitancy. And I was focusing a lot on like, these are the belief systems in this culture 
This is where they're coming from. And with the folks in LA, a lot of them were elderly black people and they had terrible problems with the medical system. It's not that they didn't feel like science was valuable. It's just like, why should I trust what somebody's telling me to do and go to see a doctor? Doctors have treated me terribly in the past. That's just one example. Right. And many of these people are working in the healthcare system. Yeah. yeah. You just cannot stop at, well, you're either with the science or you're not. It's as if, so as much if more complicated real than science, that. As if science were factual, right? Real scientists understand this is a model. We're doing the best we can. It's the way we are interpreting the world right now. A hundred years from now, this is mostly going to be considered wrong. Yeah. Yes. But I want to go back to something that you said yeah. earlier too about communication approach. Right. When COVID first came out, it's like, listen to us. We know what we're talking about. That's always the wrong approach. And this is something that I'm kind of working on right now with our particular you would be. Yeah. our climate problem, yeah. that little climate problem we've got going on right now. And there's going to be more flooding and more of what oh, the DEP refers to as cloud, more cloudburst situations. Right. This is going to get worse. Like I everybody's like, like pretty much in agreement. Yeah. We're going to get more of this. And more fires in Canada and more smoke and more. Yeah. yeah. But, but the way that you address it in my view, from my experience, yeah. is that you go to people in various different communities. There's a particular community in Queens, for example, that we're starting out with. It's um, Casina neighborhood. Yeah. They, they've had a lot of problems with flooding. And so you go to the people in the community and it's like, what do you guys think? You know, it's like, go and get people to talk to you. Don't go in there and say, you guys need to do this. And this is why you need to do it. Maybe that's true, but that's not how you start out the conversation. Right. And there are a lot of different ways to do that, not just interpersonally, but there are ways that you can use social media, that you can, you know, you know, citizen journalists or just journalists from the local area. We can you can start yep. a conversation. Yeah. Gather information. I know it takes a long time. I know it takes a lot of effort. It's going to take a lot of effort. I know. That conversation is hard for people too. So it's like, I listen to, um, I mean, that's why I watch so much Fox. So I listen to Fox when they talk about climate events. And what they'll do is have people come on and say, well, you know, if you really look at these climate events, it's always man-made things that are breaking, right? It's our dams where the floods happen. It's our, you know, the improperly made cities and managed cities where the problems. And on a certain level, that's also Aboriginal logic and true. It's like, mm -hmm. right, the it's only true. reason we're really having problems is because we're trying to push back nature. At a certain point, the ocean will reclaim the city that you yes. built with ocean sand yes. on the shore. Exactly. So if it's hear, true. Right, and then you hear it that way and you go, okay, Yes, and, mm -hmm. you know, yes, and there's all these, this, you're right, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you can't fault them for that, but it's almost, I, I don't watch Fox News, uh, so I, 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 well, I'm, I can really I'm not do small able, doses. It's I'm hard. not able to, like, understand it the way that you're describing it, but I'm sure their angle is, like, it's happening in all these, like, liberal cities. Yeah. I mean, there's, like, all these and liberals have done bad things. management, because government's managing land and managing these yeah. things incorrectly in right. and putting too much regulation and on assuming, stuff. And assuming that developers somehow, you know, know what they're doing, when in fact, developers don't, and they're causing a lot of the problems. In New York City, I just sat through three days of workshops with at the DEP. Fascinating. I learned so much. And I learned, you know, 
We have a problem with development in New York City, obviously. People are putting up buildings willy-nilly all over the place because they want to get in a lot of renters and make a lot of make a fast buck. And New York City government has allowed this to happen for a long time. But they're not taking into consideration the fact that we live surrounded by water. And the more concrete and building you put up, the less chance there is for that water to be deposited properly in the direction that it needs to go in a natural sense because water's going to go where water wants to go. Like down into That's the, the subway. That's the Water the loves, <laughs> loves the subways. There are all these little drain holes all yeah. over the place. <laughs> yeah, we just, our infrastructure is built for a 20th century flood system scenario. And we're in the 21st century with great climate change and it's not adequate. And the people who are developing and making a lot of money off of building these huge buildings are not helping the situation mm. at all. But so to, to the sort of communications or media literacy or media studies 101 or the fifth grade unit or the seventh grade unit on media studies, sort of what's a better starting point for educators who go, oh, look at social media, look at TikTok. I want my kids to understand this because, I mean, teachers are creative. They can make up their own exercises. But what's a better sort of premise or starting place for them to do this in the more dynamic way? Well, when I was with the LAMP, I used to do quite a few visits to PTAs and give them a, a spiel, right? And the landscape has changed since I did that. I did that like eight years ago. I was doing a lot of that. And and everything's different now. There's TikTok. Yeah. There's, you know, things have... Yeah, we were still early Insta. Yeah. yeah. But the thing, I guess, despite the changes that have taken place, my message was always, don't be so fearful. Just calm down a little bit calm down a little bit, try to meet your your children where they are. It's kind of, you know, I don't have all the answers for you for sure, but I can tell you that there is a way to get to understand this stuff a little bit. And you can start by just talking to your children a little bit and seeing what they're doing. But just try not to be afraid to the point where you're losing your cool, because then you're not going to be able to come to any sort of understanding with the young people in your lives. That was the message that I gave parents. And then I would give them a few exercises too, like some, we'd do some quick media literacy exercises. And, and they all felt like they had a little something to take away. There was a kind of an empowerment that they got just from that conversation. But I have to tell you, I don't know a lot of stuff. I'm uncertain about a lot of stuff. And I'm learning more and more that being uncertain is okay as long as you don't freak out. Let's just not freak out. Right. But let's be okay with being uncertain. Like, I don't really know. But here's a way you can start to think about it yeah. and start to do something. Let's do something. Just a, a week yeah. or so ago, I, I interviewed a person who wrote a book called Uncertain, mm. which is mm -hmm. about that. And what she found out was even scientifically, and when you're in a state of uncertainty, all of your rational processes work better than when you're in a state oh, of certainty. You yeah. learn better, you're, you're more open, your neurotransmitters go better. You know, so it's yeah, like, how sense. do you learn to tolerate greater and greater states of uncertainty is, is that's resilience as yeah. opposed to certainty is that, that brittleness that leads us into this, all this mess. Well, and I would argue that the digital environment is like the environment of uncertainty. It's just, right. is. it's like the whole thing is uncertain and it's happening at this very, this, you know, this pace that we can't keep up right. with. So we're always going to be a little bit like this. Yeah. I and like then that. How do you keep kids, I mean, or adults 
comfortable in that flux. Because if they don't, I mean, that's what, what my book, what, 2013 Present Shock was about, mm-hmm. that when they're mm-hmm. in that panic moment, they grab basically a conspiracy theory or they connect the dots yeah. in a way. And it's yeah. like, well, that's a way to connect the dots, but not yeah. the way. Yeah, that is a good way of explaining how people are grasping for meaning. Yeah, because they're uncertain. But if all of your neurons are firing better in an uncertain circumstance, then perhaps you can maybe, I mean, maybe your paradigms will shift more easily. I mean, it suggests that, right? right. Because paradigms, I mean, I love talking about paradigms. Because to me, it's like, you know, how do you see the world? It, it's based on so many different things. Or as John Barlow used to say, paradigms won't even get you a phone call in most cities. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. But no, but you're right. It's being able to then try on another way of seeing the world. You know, well, this is what why I love Robert Anton Wilson's work, you know, the cosmic trigger. And he was a great, you know, counterculture figure. And he did it through humor. But what it was always about was, you know, you're in a reality tunnel, but everyone else is in a different one. And try mm-hmm. on this one, try on that one. You could be the cynic one day and the believer the next. Which is why you have to be so careful when you bandy about the word truth. Well, you know, where's the truth? This is the truth. And it's such a contradiction to me because people talk about, they use that term truth truth in so many different contexts. So interesting. Like people will say, you know, this novel really gets at the truth of this particular situation or the truth of this era. And I'm like, okay, there's a really interesting use of the word truth. And now you're the same person who's saying, you know, we can figure out what the truth of a situation is based on how the news media are reporting it. Mm, no, no. Let's be more uncertain with this word truth, I guess. Right. That would be my takeaway. Except, it's kind of an uncertain concept. Right. But there are certain concepts. Like, a hundred people are going to vote for mayor of this town. 60 said Joe and 40 said Mary. Right. Joe actually won. Right, right. Yes. Yeah, I mean, yeah, of course. Of course. I mean, and and I'm sitting in a chair right Right. now speaking into a microphone. That's actually a true thing that's happening, right? I get that. But usually the way that Unless you throw it up, fall down the walls, you know, like it was funny. It was the actually it was the end of the first season of Apprentice where they did that. You're not in a boardroom. You're on a stage set. It was in the television studio. And it's like that's to me is the great crime of so-called reality TV Mm. that it did break the truthiness of narrative fiction television, but it replaced it with something as contrived and fake as the original. Yeah. And and what is fake anyway? Like, what's the fake part? You know, again, yeah. I have, I guess philosophically, I have a lot of problems with those terms. Hmm. A lot of problems. Because to me, the world is so much gray space. There's so much gray area and so many various different ways to think about anything. Yeah. Maybe that's why I got into this business. I don't know. It is. I, yeah. It's all the in-between. I mean, the in-between is where the action's at. And that's the problem for me of the digital media environment is everything seems to be on the clicks, on the quantized grooves. And it's like I've, I've always said, you know, life does not happen on the ticks of the clock. Life happens in that space between the ticks that seems to be ignored by the metrics people, by the money people, by the digital people. It's like yeah. gone. Everything that's quantifiable to me is suspect. Yes, <laughs> it is. And I get it. It's more truthy on a certain level because it's quantifiable. But Well, it's truthy because you believe in numbers. Yeah. But one of the thing, the valuable <laughs> lessons that I learned in graduate school when yeah. I took my quantitative methodology class. And you passed it? Which was, yeah. yeah, which was really interesting. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, the more the professor talked to us about how you manipulate 
manipulate certain tests or how you load certain values. And I mean, yeah. wait a minute, yeah. you're manipulating the outcome here. And like, this isn't yeah. any more truthful than somebody who's doing qualitative analysis, like, you know, talking to people and interviewing them and gathering qualitative data, which is I know. what, what I've done. Every little ethnographic study gets poo-pooed by those guys. You read a book like, what was that book? I'm lying with charts. They're lying with graphs. And it's like, oh, fuck them. You know, in some <laughs> ways, this is a lot more truth because at least people can resonate with it as, does it feel true, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And journalism is becoming very data-driven now, like data journalism is like all the rage. And people do need to understand numbers. They do need to understand like how information is yeah. gathered and then and can be displayed in important. a visual way. Back to the thing of the, the, the pictures of the people getting mugged in New York. It's like, there's a picture, it's very visceral. Is this a worse problem today than it was yesterday? You're not telling me that. You know, right. that data would help. Because you're that. taking it out of context. Right. Yeah. Historic context. Context. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Context, so, anyone? Yeah. yeah. But context is what? It's the taking it out of the environment. Back to if you don't have anyone talking about the ground. And that's the thing. We're in such a figure-based media space now, and nobody's talking about – everyone's afraid of the ground. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe they figure it's too complicated. It's too complex. It is. It's complex. It's so complex. But that's the beauty of it. Right. It's really complex. It's a great. Right. That's why, like, it's like the thinking about it is so interesting. It forces and the humility. making the connections with everything. Like, this stuff is connected. Everything. Like, I have students right now who are working on activist projects, and they're. I tried to get them to work on climate change issues. They didn't want to, and that's fine because it's their choice. They want to talk about wage theft is one yeah. of their big issues. Interesting. And the, and the yeah. other one is New York City housing. And those are two great activist projects that they're working on. But I'm trying to gently nudge them into like understanding how it's also connected to climate change issues. These are all environmental things that mm. are connected. So it's a challenge, but um, it's a good one. It's a good challenge. Yeah. yeah. Connection, uncertainty, chaos. Yep. Dynamic models. Yep. It's all good. It's all media ecology. <laughs> it's all media ecology. But there is that activist piece of it that I feel is so important. Mm -hmm. I feel like there's no point in having, like, modeling a way of thinking about the world, having a heuristic, or teaching people to understand media in a particular way, unless you yourself have in your mind that the point of this is to take action. The point of it is to do something. That's how I approach all of this with all of my students. And I make them all do projects where they have to do something. Right. Pick a problem. How are you going to take all of the knowledge that you have right now and make a plan to do something? Right. And it's a double discipline that way. It's like, because you also learn then, don't really do the thing until you've done some rigorous study about what what needs to be done and what your action might how yeah, it might impact things exactly yeah, yeah. so you, you get have both. to do the research yeah. yeah yeah well cool well we'll keep doing things here thank you for being <laughs> on Team Human my pleasure thank you for asking me anytime you'll be back you'll be back we'll figure things out but thank you thank you for everything and thank you for being on Team Human our guest today was Catherine Fry media studies professor and the author of the new book. 
dynamic media environments. You can find out more about her by going to teamhuman.fm. You can also go there to become a supporting member of the show and get access to our ad-free Team Human team feed, uh, access to our Discord and our live Team Human Kibitz Room events and also live events anywhere we happen to do them. Team Human was produced by Joshua Chapdelin and edited by Luke Robert Mason. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.